Let's be 100% clear about something. Heroes, yeah, they're a dime a dozen. Inspiration, sure, everyone's got inspiration. It's easy to throw that word around. But when you're actually putting a poster of somebody up on your wall, that is a whole other level. Posters don't lie. Now, I only had one poster of someone up on my wall ever, and I was nine years old, and it was a poster of Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. And Nick Rhodes is my guest today on Last Party on Earth. Now, it wasn't a full-size poster. It was like a mini poster, the kind you'd get back then in a little fan magazine, and you'd pop open the staples and unfold it and pin it to your wall. And I was a child. I'm talking child. I think Nick Rhodes was the first name I even knew at that time. Yes, I had grown up on Hank Williams records and I loved Hank Williams. Yes, I liked a bunch of kind of cool new wave stuff I was hearing. My parents were playing Rolling Stones, all kinds of stuff. But way before techno, way before Leonard Cohen and Prince and David Bowie, way before all of that, for me, the real truth, it was Duran Duran. As a kid, it was just mind-blowing. And it wasn't just all of Duran Duran. That poster was just Nick. Because Nick, I knew, was my kind of guy. He stood there behind the synthesizer. He didn't have a guitar. And he looked amazing. They all looked amazing. And they had the best clothes. And my imagination ran wild with what that life would be like, what it would be like to look that way. And it was just exciting, exotic, and purely inspirational in the truest sense of the word, in the sense of guiding your life and changing your value system. Around that same time, probably even earlier than that, I would spend my winters in Goa in India. And Goa back then was extremely primitive. I mean, we barely had electricity. We had no shops. We had no Western amenities. We had nothing. Your last chance to get anything was the night before you would take the boat down the coast to Goa, you would be in Bombay, in Mumbai. And at the hotel, there was a little gift shop. And in that gift shop, my parents said, okay, you can get something. Uh, something to last you the next, I don't know, four months. And I bought a cassette of the first Duran Duran album. A cassette, for sure, an Indian bootleg. Like the volume would go up and down and up and down. It had like a photocopied little J card. But in that photocopied little J card and that crappy recording, that was my world for four months. I listened to it hundreds and hundreds of times. I knew every line and every sound and everything. And in that tiny little photo little, little thumbnail photo. That was all I had. In many ways, it's like the anti-internet. It's maximum imagination with minimum input. Something happened, a real inspiration and a real nuclear reaction was started to the point that here I am a hundred years later, and I'm actually talking about it. But more importantly, I'm actually going to talk to Nick Rhodes, the man himself. He's had an unbelievable career. Now, obviously, Duran Duran is just a massive success, and they had enormous number of hit records and fantastic albums, and they toured the world, stadium shows. They more or less like invented the music video, and A to Z of the packaging and the graphic design and the stagecraft and the album covers and the style and the clothing, and they, they just nailed it. They hit it out of the park, so much so that in a lot of ways, it became an archetype, really, for the style. But more importantly, or as equally important, in Nick, I, as a nine-year-old, I guess I did see something because he really is 
the Renaissance man, just always curious, super creative, into architecture, photography, music, everything. I ended up meeting him by chance in the early 2000s. It was kind of the opposite of that thing about don't meet your heroes. It was actually more like, oh, your your intuition as a child wasn't far off, and this person is is great. We uh, started kind of like a loose friendship, a bit of a pen pal thing. I don't know. I just think he's great. And I was super happy for the chance to sit down and talk to him. It's a long interview. It was our second one. The first one got erased. This one happened in January, super lockdown period. We go through so much great music. It's a bit of a who's who of the greats. I hope you enjoy it. We cover all kinds of great things. Nick is a consummate gentleman, a very inspiring individual. And here we go. Nick Rhodes on Last Party on Earth. Last Party It looks as though we are recording. Yeah. So here we are again. Like I said before, it was funny. We, we did a whole, we had a, a really good conversation and it got lost, just vanished. Yeah. Like you said, we're going to, we, we can get a bit more abstract. We got a lot of that initial stuff out of the way. <laughs> I know it's a shame to lose conversations, isn't it? I, I suppose we lose conversations every day when we just chat to people, but it's um, it's bizarre when you record something with the intention of playing it to other people and then suddenly it's not there anymore. Yeah. yeah. I hate that. It often happens <laughs> to me with digital photos. That's That's been the bane of my life for the last uh, 20 years of digital. Uh, there's always one that somehow gets corrupted. And of course, it's the file that you like the best. It's kind of an interesting thing about about letting go, you know. I remember I used to it used to really freak me out the idea of had you recorded anything with that intention and you lose it. And now I'm a little bit a little bit more philosophical about it. Indeed. There were a few things that I loved that I partially remember, but they're lost. Well, <laughs> we can always fake them again, Tegan. I know, I know. But I, I, I know we could. I know we are both capable of that. Here we are again. I don't know, time moves a little bit strange lately. I'm not sure if that was like, was that a month ago, three months ago? Oh, I don't remember either. It was at least two, three months, actually, because uh, the reason we lost my side of the conversation for sure was that <laughs> my, my computer uh, imploded and actually my hard drive committed suicide. It, it was too late. Whatever I, I, I could possibly have done to it it was not going to resuscitate uh, all the information so did you really have to go see a genius oh yeah i went to the genius bar because <laughs> it was it was the quickest way for that to deal alone with... <laughs> for that alone it's all worth it just for me well in my dying moment in a million years i will i will think back to nick rhodes at the genius bar <laughs> well, the thing was, it was the quickest solution. I spoke to actually a friend at Apple, I do confess. And he said, look, we can we can find someone to deal with it for you. But if you just want to find out what the problem is, the quickest thing is to um, get an appointment at the Genius Bar because they really, they do know exactly what's going on. So I went in and I saw this very nice chap in London and uh, yeah, that was it. But the, the Genius Bar, uh, and of course- What did you wear? What did you wear uh, to the genius? Oh, oh gosh, I don't know. I should, I should think something black with a hood um, and a mask and shades, of course. Um, oh, yeah, it's true. Mask. Mask at the genius bar. Yeah. That's 2020 right there. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. But sadly, you know, masks used to be something of great beauty, didn't they? But not anymore. Not anymore. I think England, like here, it's kind of full lockdown again, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As yeah. of yesterday. Um, well, it's, it's a catastrophe. Um, <laughs> I, I think, unfortunately, uh, there's nothing anyone can really do to slow it other than lock things down. Um, there's no other options at this point. It's the, with all the new strains and every hideous detail we get every day. Oh, um, God. No, there's, it's, uh, it's so contagious that anyone can get it at any time, can't they? And um, uh, Let's just hope the vaccine works out. I try as much as possible just to, to not really think about it or talk about it too much. It's just a, a waiting game in a sense. Yeah, depressing. Yeah, it is. As it relates to the condition of the, the artist stuck at home, which I guess still is a pretty privileged, relatively privileged position. For you, like after a career with all the performances and all the shows and all the videos and everything, can that live part of a music career ever be replaced? Well, no, I don't think anything will replace it. And of course, um, everybody, including ourselves, uh, we're looking at things we can do online to um, keep in touch with the audience and to try to put out uh, new product, new music to connect. But at the same time, uh, what we all want, uh, all artists, I think, is the um, ability to be able to play live again uh, because we know that that is uh, irreplaceable. Of course, it's great to be able to do things online, but it's rather more of a supplement than a, a replacement. I don't know when it will be. We have shows booked for the summer this year that we are really, really very much hoping will all happen just the same again as every other artist out there and every fan out there of any artist. Uh, live music, such a big part, or live entertainment, um, theatre, uh, shows, it's such a big part of, um, of our lives. And it's, um, it's awful having that taken away along with all the other civil liberties. Uh, it, it just, I think one thing it has done is shown us all in the world how fragile things are and how easy it is to just stick a pin in, 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 in the balloon and, and deflate everything that we're all about and everything that we all love and yeah. uh, seeing people, being with people, socializing, uh, going to events, uh, working, go, go, you know, even walking now, which uh, you can sort of do here just for a little bit of exercise. But the, there's just fear in the air. You can see, yeah, you in see people's eyes. When you see the person walking down, like on the same side of the street as you, and you yeah. do that weird kind of like that little jig. Awful, awful. But, but hopefully, hopefully things start to change in the summer. Um, I, I think we're all sort of uh, banking on the vaccines coming through for us. Uh, but it's, it's yeah. terrible with the thing. The way it mutates, you never know, you know. It's not really... To, to get into it's more like how, how do some of those sensations get replaced what well, can you do well i've been quite lucky in that i've been able to go into the studio um with just me and um 
and the engineer I work with a lot, Josh, um, to create new music, uh, which I, I've, I've been working with um, That's good. A, a fabulous artist called Wendy Bevan, who I did an album with uh, towards the end of last year, a, a, a regular you know, vocal album. And um, it turned out really beautifully. And, and so we were thinking of how to put it out. And we were just chatting about it. And I said, well, I just don't think the timing is right. You know, we've put a lot of work into it. And I, I think it's really beautiful. And I'd like people to hear it. So maybe we just do something a bit more, a bit more uh, instrumental, abstract, as sort of a lead into the album. And that started off as, as the idea of uh, one instrumental album, which is a combination of uh, uh, mostly analog synthesizers with uh, violins and some orchestral instruments and choral voices, which uh, Wendy is rather wonderful at um, creating. And we, we, we were about four or five pieces in, and I realized that this was something extraordinary and unusual and so we just kept making them for months and during during that time um i've now amassed enough for four albums uh, with wendy uh, plus the the vocal album which wasn't my intention at the beginning of the year but but i was able to work quite quickly on them and i just loved what we were getting so yeah so so i mean I, i've kept myself busy i i the, the duran album has been slowly uh um moving along we we did some mixes uh, with the master spike stent we've got about seven or eight tracks done already the Giorgio Moroder track simon just needs to sing the final vocals on there's a couple of those which sound really oh, terrific oh wow that was a real thrill, actually. He's one of my superheroes. So we've yes. been talking about working with him for <laughs> nearly four decades at this point. So finally, we we we, we got to uh, we got to do that. That that was great. Was it remote? Did you have to? Was no, it send, no, no. sending things uh, back uh, and forth or no? No, fortunately, it was pre-COVID times. So ah, when okay. we did the actual recording, so it was pure joy. Um, wow. Giorgio came over to London. And we worked in the studio here with him and uh, then we got the tracks in some shape and he came back and uh, we did another few days and tweaked them. Um, he's amazing. Uh, he's really one of the true maestros. Uh, yeah, people forget he's got what three Oscars or something. Um, yeah. And that he did soundtracks for things, well, cat people, obviously, but um, things like Scarface. You know, which is an amazing soundtrack, yeah. and and obviously Midnight Express, and 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 you know, working with him, uh, I learned a lot, and and I I'm still always thrilled and to to learn anything from from another musician or artist, and you just realise how great he is as a composer and. The, the work that he's done. Um, there's very few people that, that have catalogues like that. Uh, and we've been lucky enough to work with a couple of them, like Niall Rogers being another one. Um, mm. But Giorgio's catalogue in a different way, the things he's done, um, it's sort of uh, one of the few that's almost comparable. I don't remember who, I was reading something recently about, it was an artist talking about their time working with Giorgio Moroder, and they said that among all the other things musically, that he taught them, that he was like, for this artist, I wish I could remember who, that it was the first exposure to this very like gentlemanly 
continental European way of living, like with the double espresso. And he had very <laughs> set rules. He had, he had rules about like working from a very set time. Like I think it yeah. was 10 AM to five or whatever. And then a big dinner. So it was a bit of this Southern German or Italian, just, oh, just the he's life. Definitely, he's definitely grow. Italian. There's no question about okay. that. Yeah. He's, up, <laughs> he's up by the borders, but he's definitely, uh, he's very Italian in, in many of his ways. He, he's an absolute sweetheart. Um, he, he's really, um, for someone who's achieved so much, to be able to stay um, that in touch with modern music and and to be so gentle and thoughtful he he he, he was fabulous everybody loved him and um, and we we really come up with something that I think is what people would want from Giorgio Moroder meets Duran Duran it's it's sort of what what you would expect to, I, I think it's how I always imagined it would sound for the last few decades and there it was suddenly i love the i what you said about someone who remains well the combination of humility and curiosity you know the, oh, the people yeah. he that, has both it seems to be it's not an accident that that the people with these really long great careers it's almost like those things they they preserve them in a way yeah. it, it it you keep that state you know and it's funny before i don't know if we actually got it recorded or not we were talking about new music and uh, you know liking contemporary artists or falling in love with new stuff and there, there definitely is something to be said for maintaining that effort always falling in love with new stuff kind of keeps you in that flexible frame of mind you know it's a good place to be I agree. I, 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 I still um, strive to find new artists and new material to listen to. Um, I have to say, um, John Taylor uh, in my band is, is, uh, is much better at it than me. Uh, he, he's the one that usually turns me on to uh, interesting new things. In fairness, Simon, Simon is better at it too. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I look in the right places. I, I'll no, but if you have a few friends, that'll do the job. Yeah, well, I, I always rely on Mark Ronson for things like that. You know, I say, Mark, what's good this year? And suddenly I get a track list and, and, and it sort of brings me up to date. But, but I have to say, I find it's generally a song. I wish mm. it was an album because um, growing up the, through the times I did, the album was a sacred format. You know, you really got the experience for whatever it was, 40 minutes, 50 minutes uh, of what an artist's statement was at that particular time. And now, because we live in this sort of world of streaming and uh, shuffle and moving tracks around, and I'll take that one from there and that one from there and playlists, you don't often get that experience unless you specifically go to find it. And I really miss that because... There was a mood that was created, and and now I'll you know I like a song by the weekend and say that's great that one song, but then I can't find five that I like in a row or an album that I I like all of, and it's very rare over the 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 last few decades that I found entire albums. There are Me things, too. of course, you know the, the some of the Kanye albums when they came out I thought were fascinating. Um, in the 90s, I, I, I loved Portishead and Gold Frap. A song's a moment, but an album yeah. starts to feel like 
a movement, like a conspiracy, like you're part of something, you know, you get into the whole, I felt like that a bit with the XX with their first record. Right. right. Yeah. That was a good record. Um, but you know, these are a long time ago now. These are, what, I 90s, know <laughs> early 2000s. It's, uh... I know it's bad when the, in my recent folder and I realize it's like, that's six years ago. It's not recent yeah, anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I loathe the thought of, of sort of not being in touch with exactly what's going on. So I listen to a lot of things, but I just, I suppose we've heard so much and we know where most things come from. And also, yes. although I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for kids with computers making whatever they can, um, that's sort of the generation that, that came out of what we did and everybody else in, in that period. Uh, and I, I love that that's possible, but often it starts to sound very similar to me now. Yeah, and there's, a, you know, there's only so many times you can listen to that auto-tune vocal sound and the same snare drum and bass drum sound, and uh, you, you can guess exactly when the, the hi-hat's going to come in. It, 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 it's... Um, mm. You know, so 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 that I don't like things that are that predictable. That it, it takes um, it takes something a bit more interesting. There are things, of course, there are things. I I, I did love the the Tame and Tame Impala album. Anyway, we digress. Where were we? So so yeah. So making things. I've been making stuff really. That that's what I, that's what I like to do the best. I um, I've been sorting out my photo library. I know we talked about that last time, but for those of you who missed our conversation last time, <laughs> <laughs> but like as soon as you said that, I pictured in my head like you know like the status bar that like last time we talked you were at like seventy six percent, and now it's slowly creeped up to like eighty one percent. Yeah, not, e not, even, I, not even, not even. I'm at about 140,000 digital photos that I've sorted at the moment. Of course, half of which I'm sure I will end up throwing away when I really sort them out, but I'm just logging them. Um, you know, this, is just, this is just sort out one. You're, yeah, of yeah, course. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not looking at them and going, okay, well, which one's the best one out of those 10? Because if you start doing that, then it takes even five times longer. I'm literally putting them in and labeling them so that I know what I've got. But what's so tragic, what's so tragic is for sure you're doing this. And even now in your head, you're telling yourself you're going to do it again. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to have to then go through and start <laughs> editing them. And then once I've started editing them, of course, then you, you get into, oh, that'd be nicer if that was in black and white, wouldn't it? Now, oh, let me just crunch the blacks up a little bit. And then you're into a whole other rabbit hole. When did you get into photography? Oh, when I was a kid. Um, I've always loved photography. For me, I, I, I know it's sort of um, it's sort of my second career in a way, but I, I take it every bit as seriously as as I do with music. It's um, I see it as a parallel uh, universe for me. I I, um, I take photos every week, um, and you know of many things. Sometimes they're entirely abstract. Sometimes they're portraits of people. Sometimes they're nature, the trees, uh, skies. I, I, I have a, quite a broad spectrum of, um, of interests, but, but I, um, I just enjoy seeing what you can get. And now with digital, the one thing I do love about it, because I still actually prefer 35 millimeter by far, but I, I shoot mostly digital. And what I do love is that um, you've got your own digital dark room where you can play around with things and really create pretty remarkable results for from what you have. The process of taking pictures 
Is it relaxing? I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but is well, it? I guess the reason I ask is because I know for myself, you know, music, the, the further you go in a career, you know, expectation creeps in, ideas of performance, of, of it it has to do something or not do something. And I don't know, something like photography, if, if you've been doing it all that time, but maybe without that structure around it, is it... Well, I, I, I always come at things from a slightly different angle than most people because it's about the image to me. And I don't mm. care how I get there. I'm not a sort of super technical photographer. I don't need three assistants and... Um, uh, you know, most cameras I will keep on automatic unless there's something that I really want to create by changing the f-stop or, or you know, fiddling with the focus. But but I, I like doing things quite quickly, and I like handmade things. So I'll I'll literally stick something in front of the camera and shoot through that. I um. I just want to get the right effect and get the mood of things. And all the f photographers I've ever ever really loved, um, I, I think, are the ones that create the right mood, whether it's fashion, who some of whom are very technical, or whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the really great uh, surrealist photographers who are my superheroes, people like Man Ray. Um, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, it's... It's down to just whatever you get, whatever the mood is. If, if I've got a camera and I'm in a room on my own with not much in it, I'll sort of almost challenge myself to try to find something to make an interesting picture. Um, and if you sit in the same room for long enough, it gets harder to try to find things. You know, sort of six weeks later or 12 weeks later, you're looking at the same thing thinking, how do I make that look differently? But there's always a way to, different, but there's always a way to do it. Well, fortunately, now you have 12 months in a room, so. Yeah, well, let's see how much is ahead, too. <laughs> 18 months. I have a question. I mean, this might this might be obvious, but going to the early Duran years where obviously image was a, I mean, image was a big thing and the visual, the visual identity of the band was so strong. Were you the fashion photography side, the logos, the, the type? Well, John and I. Yeah, John and I really, uh, for me, Duran Duran was, uh, I've said it, I'm sure many times before, but it was always about uh, the merger of, of all these different art forms. Uh, you know, you could almost think of it like a, a company, if you like, that, that, that mm. uh, instead of just uh, selling music or playing music, uh, we wanted to have photography, fashion, art, cinema, uh, graphic design, um, architecture in the stage sets and things like that. And we sort of drew them all in and um, worked with the greatest people we ever could, uh, which is certainly uh, for anyone, the way to always make yourself look better is working with really <laughs> great people um, because they, 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 you know, they, they've got there for, for a reason and we've been very lucky and we have chosen very well. Um, to work with some amazing people in, in every field, you know, from um, lots of incredible fashion photographers, people I, I still love, like Ellen Von Unworth, and, uh, mm. um, and even, even old school photographers like Horst we worked with before he, uh, before he left us. He was quite old at the time, but he took an amazing portrait of the band. So things like that I think have been special. And then with film, 
We were very lucky to work with Russell Mulcahy on all the videos when he was the hottest video director around in in the uh, in the early 80s and then later decades later we find ourselves making a live film with David Lynch um which was a, an absolute thrill because he's another one of my uh, my great uh, heroes for the the work that he's done you nailed it 100% well for me it's always been about taste and editing um mm. i i think it's about that for everybody, but people see things in different ways. Um, the eye of the beholder, you know, I, uh, I've never bought an album where I didn't like the album cover. I, I almost, uh, just refuse to, it doesn't make sense to me because <laughs> I, I can't, I, I can't imagine why someone would make a great record and then have a terrible album cover. Yeah. Um, same with band name. Yeah, exactly. Band name exactly. too. I'm always like, what, how did that how do you expect me to buy the rest if you couldn't? Exactly. So, so unfortunately, um, you know, those things do matter quite a lot. And, and, and I feel the same about typefaces. Uh, mm. I feel the same about the size of the font, um, about uh, what, what we wear when we go on stage. I, I feel the same about what I wear when I get up in the morning. But, but if, um, if you do care about those details then it produces a very different picture than if you just wear a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt and get your acoustic guitar out and write a song. Okay, so now I'm just jumping all over the place and I've thrown out my script. First of all, when you say something like what you just said, I feel, I told you this before, I don't know how it is, but nobody I've ever spoken to says it in a way that just makes so much sense to me about caring about those things. And it just, because it seems completely logical, but at the same time, why do some people not care? Why don't they care about the font on the record? I mean, maybe it's an impossible I, I question, but I... It is, I think it, it, it is sort of an impossible question to answer <laughs> because some, some people who just turn around and say, well, why do you care? Uh, what we care about is the words in our song and how the, the chorus uh, comes to a... A climax at this point and um I, it, Do you think for me they're not or? separate well no i don't no. at all I, there's nothing that i separate between any of the things that that uh, regarding um a product that is going to be released i want to put it forward to people to say this is our thing this is what we want it to look like this is what we want it to sound like this is where mm. we are in the world right now uh but but in in other ways, I think people do do the same. It's just that obviously it's not necessarily our taste. Mm. Uh, if you look at rock records or particularly heavy metal records, they have very much their own style that works for what they are doing, and they probably think what well, whatever we're doing looks absolutely hideous, and why would we do it? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I get that, but at least with metal, they, they do know what they like and what they want to wear and um, what their album covers are going to look like and they know who they're going to go to for their logo. I, I get that. There is a style to it. It's when things are bland and nobody's thought about it. I suppose that's what I find the most irritating mm. of all. Um, beige, beigeness. You are a very visual person. The first step is simply the awareness of the details. So for example, I always think of like when you're in Japan, you realize that the baseline awareness and appreciation for details, it's not necessarily good or bad taste. It's just that baseline awareness 
to appreciate all the differences visually is there. Oh, and that and that's the first building block to to the rest, you know. So you obviously, that's in you. Probably was in you since you're 11 years old or nine years old. Or I guess, but also the first time I went to Japan, I was besotted mental. With, yeah. with with the <laughs> with, with, with the way that things were there, with with the the, the look of everything, the, everything. the way they the way they wrap things. Oh my when God! You, when keep... you go to a store and you buy something, you can buy a pencil, but it comes in the most exquisite bag, and they 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 love layers of things, don't they? So so it sort of gets wrapped about three times. I know. And it, it's sort of almost b- worth buying the pencil just so that you can unwrap it and see what they've done. I I, I love that about Japan. I love their detail and Same. their aesthetic sense and. Uh, their their um their tranquility i see them as being very very gentle there the way they eat the way they present things um it, yeah. it's it's just different than than our western approach if i think like of a little fantasy of oh where if i could go somewhere it's always tokyo yeah i i must i must say i really miss tokyo i haven't been there for a long time um it was a couple of years ago um and uh well two and a half years whatever it was and uh and I actually started making a documentary um, whilst I was there that filmed most of the greatest living Japanese photographers because I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, beautiful Japanese photography and photography books. Yeah, I, I, I did about 30 interviews in eight days, I think, which nearly finished me off. But But I got really, really <laughs> fantastic, insightful um really extraordinary stuff from from them because they're all such brilliant artists i would love to know more about that could be organized tiger there's <laughs> <laughs> still time oh my god i can't even imagine the japanese masters and dark rooms and techniques the wormhole of precision oh well the, the, the photography out of japan from sort of the the late 50s through until the early 80s, it was just uh, the most inspirational period. And again, different because it has that Japanese sensibility. I could talk about this for hours, perhaps another time we'll get we'll get into it. It it really is quite beautiful. There's a few of the photographers that I'm absolutely fascinated with their output. What's a name just so I can... Daido Moriyama would be a good place to start. He's, um, Moriyama, got it. Yeah, yeah. He's really um, one of one of the greats and uh, fascinating too. So I had actually, you're part of the reason that I changed the format slightly. I had originally Last Party on Earth was very much geared towards DJs and I've expanded it. It's evolved slightly for uh, uh, for musicians and artists in general that aren't quite as... Uh, shackled to the DJ format. The first question is, uh, what is the first record that you bought with your own money? Well, that's an easy one. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. (laughs) And you Um, get a 10 on 10 for that. Yeah, uh, I'd seen David Bowie on Top of Pops uh, doing Starman. Didn't know what time it was The lights were low, oh, oh Laying down some rock and roll Not a soul he said 
very famous uh, clip um, from Top of the Pops because I think it changed a lot of people's lives, uh, certainly people who became musicians like me, because I looked at it and I thought, I want to be like that. Mm. There was something otherworldly and exotic about, about it in the in the 70s, which were quite dull in England, and this would have been about 72. And, and I saved up my pocket money and went to buy that record. And I listened to it so many times. I don't know how I didn't destroy it, but I still have the copy, of course, having kept everything. And uh, it's not in bad condition. And the, the inside cover, which is paper and black and white, is, is still there. So... So there you go. But that was the one, and it really changed the destiny um, very much of, of my life at that time and, um, and a lot of other people's. I told my, my parents uh, at the age of 10 that I, I was going to be a musician, and this had sort of followed on from uh, before that. And I think the first one was a magician, then it was an astronaut, but then I got to <laughs> musician, and and I think when I was 10, of course, they said, oh, darling, you know, that's nice. That'll be fine. Thinking, oh, we'll grow out of that by the time he's 11. What's next? But I was still saying it when I was 12. And then when I was 14. And then when I was 16, I formed the band. And it so was over. by then, by then, yeah. They, they <laughs> the writing the little more on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, They're like, well, a, the, magi- the magician record. thing didn't pan out, but it's obvious that this mu- musician thing is happening. Exactly. <laughs> I love how kids want to be magicians. Well, it, it's, it's a fantastic thing to want to be. Isn't it? It's I the greatest love, thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, I still love magic. There's something about it, the, 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 the sort of mysticism of magic and the, the, the absolute awe of when somebody oh, does yeah. a, an illusion beautifully and you, you can't figure out for the you life of you how they've done it and it keeps you awake for days. I, 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 I really love that. I don't think anything impresses me more in the world. Like, <laughs> no, I there you go. In, <laughs> do you know Stuart Price? You must, I think you must know Stuart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've met him a couple of times. I don't know him well. Stuart once, and we were DJing together at a party, I think in Mallorca or something strange like that. And we just met and he just bust out some magic tricks. I mean, really well executed magic tricks. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. I want to be your friend. That's it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know he could do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we have this fantastic uh, magician here in, in the UK called Dynamo. Um, I don't know whether you've seen oh, I him, thought you but... were going to say like around your house. <laughs> oh, no, I wish. A personal um, magician, that's when you know you've arrived. Um, no, Dynamo is a very famous uh, magician. He's done a lot of TV stuff here. But if you haven't seen his things, he's, he's rather, uh, rather fabulous, worth, worth watching. I mean, there's definitely overlap with entertainment and showmanship and distraction and all those, all the tricks. The tricks are real, you know. I remember reading that. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. And I remember I read uh, Leonard Cohen, who's one of my big, uh, big heroes, how he, uh-huh. as a kid, he studied, uh, he had books on hypnotism. And he would read all these books about, and then he would try out these tricks on like friends, like women, like friends of his mother's and stuff, a suggestion. And, 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 and you can, and it's interesting when I, then you listen to his records. I mean, I'm not saying he's, he was using all those tricks, but just the understanding of, of other people and what people react to. And, and it's, it's super interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like him very much. I, um, I was never a, a big <gasps> fan early on. I got into him later. 
Actually, I have Bono to thank for that. Uh, he said to me one day, um, he said, you know, uh, going to see Leonard Cohen, he said, it's like a religious experience. And As he would say. Whether, yeah, and I, I don't know whether I need a religious experience, but, but, um, but no, he was, he was just saying it, it really is an, an amazing thing, a different type of event. And he said, couldn't believe I'd never seen him. He said, you yeah. have to see him at least once. And so funny enough, Leonard Cohen was coming to London on his last tour and he was playing at the O2. And I, I sort of remembered this in the back of my mind. I thought, you know, he's right. I should see Leonard Cohen at least once because he's, he's such a remarkable performer. And I, I love some of the records. So, so I went and I was transfixed. Yeah. Uh, I guess he was almost 80 at that time. Uh, but you wouldn't have thought it. He was skipping around the stage yeah. as if he were in his mid fifties or something. And the voice and his grace—I was so taken by his grace, the way he—that's the word. Spoke, <laughs> he spoke to the audience, and the way he spoke about the band and the the love he had for them and what they'd done to the songs whilst they were performing them for him. It, it was. Uh, it was really special, actually. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy I did see him. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I saw a couple of those shows too. Bono's like next to you, like huh, I told you, religious, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't, I, I haven't seen him since I saw that show. I think I have, but I haven't spoken. You know what I love? I always think it's so funny. I feel like Bono, I feel like you could do, you could do like a documentary about anything and you can get a phrase from Bono. <laughs> like a clever like a remark i just feel like he's in every documentary there's like a moment well of i think i think well firstly i think there's several of him not one of him there's several of him because uh you know that, that he's, he's in too many places at once for there only to be one but but he is he's very cultivated and um you know he's passionate. He's, he's a he, yeah yeah I, I i mean he he definitely uh he means the things he says and, and yes i i, exactly. I, I like yeah. that i i, I think uh I think that's to be admired. Okay, so yeah, Bowie, first choice. I guess it's hard to, it's impossible to overstate Bowie. Did you have a favorite uh, favorite track on Ziggy? Well, the entire album, Moon Age Daydream, uh, Five Years, um, Starman, uh, Lady Stardust. I, I don't think there's much. I think my least favorite track was the one he didn't write, which was It Ain't Easy. And I've never oh, quite yeah, yeah. understood how that, made it onto the album yeah it's a strange one yeah really really surprising because uh, literally it's the only track on the whole album that i'm not wild about <laughs> but um but uh yeah wow what, what, what a record and that of course um put him through the roof after having that big hit with space oddity and then nothing imagine making hunky dory and oh it God. flops you know, know the album that's got Life on Mars and changes. Beauty Brothers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it flops. Uh, know, what would crazy. you think? Uh, it, it's crazy, really, that that wasn't uh, an enormous hit. Later, it, it, it obviously caught up in sales and when they re-released Life on Mars and everything else. But, but to think you'd made that record and it wasn't that successful. Crazy. And the, man, the Man Who Sold the World's a great record, too. I confess, I heard the, the Nirvana version first, which is crazy. 
But wow, anyway, that is almost I crazy. I, I have to say to you. That is, it's disappointing. I'll, I'll edit that out. Well. Did, uh, <laughs> did you, so did you meet Bowie? Did you have any kind of relationship with Bowie? Yes, later on, yeah. not, not at age uh, 10? No, but later. Uh, we, we, we met David in the very early, very early day, 80s. And um, yeah, I, I, I spent a good decade um, hanging out with him quite a lot. Um, and... It was, it, was, it was fun. He's, he was um, fascinating, funny, very funny, great sense of humor, sharp, um, yeah. and uh, really, again, cared about everything he did for his art, for whether it's the tour or the, uh, obviously, the albums, absolutely passionate about it all. Uh, which is which is what I'd expected. You know, when you meet your heroes, it, it's always difficult because uh, they say don't meet your hero because they could easily let you down. I, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't let down by David at all. I, I think he um, he was full of energy and and curiosity, as you mentioned before. That's very important to always keep that, and he yeah. had it in abundance. Yeah. What, but what did it? I mean, you were so young. And you started to meet a lot of your heroes, presumably, on relatively equal ground, you know, like having, was it all just happening really, really quickly? Did you take it all kind of in stride? Were you, I don't know, well, do you remember first, what it felt like? Yeah, I, I do. I remember certainly the first time we, we met David, uh, it was a bit surreal because I remembered sitting as a 10-year-old watching him on Top of the Pops and having his picture on my wall. And then suddenly, sort of a decade later, uh, not even really that long, several years no, later. No, it's more like uh, seven, I was going to say. It's, yeah, 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 it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Uh, several years later, we're, we're sort of sitting in the same room talking about music. It was, it was, um, it was bizarre. But, but I, I think when you start to do things yourself, we, we, we you, you get a different perspective because we'd been, um, We'd been doing okay. Planet Earth had become a hit, and I guess we were probably onto our second album when I met David onto the Rio album. So we had some confidence of our own and something to show for it. So I think that sort of enables you to be able to uh, converse on a, a slightly more even level, even though, of course, uh, his his uh, achievements and success and was. Um, years and years and years ahead of of, of anything we'd done, um, we still had lots to talk about in common. Yeah, and you're part of the, you know, you have your your membership card is kind of punched. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, da David, if I may call him David, he seems like the kind of guy that would be quite gracious. Yeah, he was, but David also was uh, quick to latch on to whatever was the the newest, mm. most interesting thing around. And, and so, so I think he, he made a point of, um, not necessarily with us, but, but with, with many uh, musicians and artists of, of uh, finding out what they were about. Uh, that, that was part of his fabric of how he made things up was by, by sort of taking a little bit of this and taking a little bit of that. And for sure, um, uh, myself and Duran Duran uh, took a page from that book. What's a record that brings you to tears? 
ideally actual tears? Um, well, uh, mostly classical and choral pieces for me. Uh, uh, things like uh, Thomas Tallis, um, the, the great uh, English uh, writer of all the, those incredible choral um, pieces. When, when, when you hear that in the right situation, it, it's very emotive. Um, Chopin can definitely uh, reduce me to tears. Uh, from rock music, I guess Pale Blue Eyes by the Velvet Underground. There's something about that every time I hear it that makes me very melancholy. Um, but in, in, a, in a rather wonderful way. I, I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful song, the naivete of it and the, the, the melody. Sometimes I feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on Uh, yeah, Lou Reed's, Lou Reed's. There's something there that it, it gets you. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of one of my other um, favorite albums when I was a kid, which I discovered through David Bowie talking about it, was Lou Reed's Transformer, um, which to me is still one of the ultimate albums of the 1970s. Uh, for anyone who hasn't heard it, who's interested in music from that period. It really is a sort of classic of its genre. And Bowie produced it, and Mick Ronson did all the strings on it, um, and the arrangements. It's, it's a mesmerizing, great, great record. There's some people, that, musicians that you, like you said, you know, you're, you're 10 years old and you see Bowie and you kind of, there's a bit of an identification, like you want to be Bowie. Or Lou Reed's someone who, like, I, I God, damn, I never want to be Lou Reed. And yet, <laughs> I l and, and, and that I love Lou Reed. What's a record that made you want to make your own music? Well, again, I would, ha I would have to say just about every record David Bowie made through the entire decade of the 1970s. Um, every change from, from the, you know, the early ones, uh, Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory through Ziggy Stardust. But then you end up after Aladdin saying you, you go through that period where you've got young Americans station to station and then Low <laughs> and Heroes and Lodger just, just. It's crazy. Um, yeah, mind-blowing, mind actually, that anyone was able to do that. And in the meantime, whilst doing that, he also did the Transformer album with Lou Reed and two Iggy Pop albums that are two of my favorite albums ever, um, The Idiot and Lust for Life, as well, uh, yeah. and toured. But so, so, so that, to me, was the ultimate inspiration. But there's many things, really. Um, I Feel Love, um, Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder, that track uh, is largely responsible for me being fascinated with synthesizers and dance music, Kraftwerk, um, Trans Europe Express and Man Machine albums are just 
spectacular pieces of music and so pristine and refined and uh, modern, uh, truly, truly modern records. So those had a, a, a massive effect on me. The first Roxy Music album, um, <clears throat> which I discovered very early too, um, around the same sort of time as Bowie. Uh, Roxy had a single out called Virginia Plain. It was probably a year later, 73 maybe, when I discovered Roxy Music. Um, but that, that, that first album, uh, well, actually the first three, four, five Roxy Music albums, all the way up to Siren, I, I think, uh, um, were a big part of my, um, my education. Um, the Velvet Underground and Nico remains one of the greatest uh, rock records ever made. And then lest we not forget the Sex Pistols. Uh, that's the reason the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, they're, they're the reason I was able to do what I wanted to do in a band. They, they're the artists who actually got up there and did it. I, I'll never forget going to a punk gig at um, Birmingham Barbarella's and watching this band play. I remember he was, he was probably, I think it was the Buzzcocks. And, um, Pete Shelley. Uh, who I, yeah, who, who I love too. And, uh, and watching this one song and, and watching the guitarist and thinking, okay, I know all those chords because I started by learning to play guitar. And I went home and I figured out that I could play that song. Um, and that was um, an absolute monumental moment. I think you called it an epiphany. Um, I, when I, I really thought, okay, so it is possible to do it. And, and I have punk rock to thank for that because before that period uh, through the sort of prog rock period and even the glam rock stuff it seemed more unreachable yeah punk punk rock brought it to to ground level and and it was also exciting and stylish and way 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 you and john go way back right so john you and john would be listening to a lot of these records and sharing ideas right from the beginning more or less oh yeah 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 for sure so like you know you guys be like oh my god you gotta hear this craft work album kind of thing yeah yeah very much um we we, we shared uh, similar taste in everything we went to lots of shows together from mick ronson was the first one we went to together and roxy music shows bowie um lots of punk shows Susie and the Banshees, I loved The Cure. Um, it's so it's so cool to have basically a lifelong partner in that. You know, it's such a, it's such a powerful thing. Oh, we were lucky because John and I were both only children, and we we lived um, a few paces away from each other in uh, Hollywood, Birmingham, um, <laughs> the, the other the the other Hollywood. Uh, and and uh, and so we we literally uh, adopted each other as brothers, and and we did everything together. We went everywhere together. We plotted things together. We went to shows together. We went to clothes stores together. We, you know, we 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 grew up together with the same dreams. And I guess the biggest one of those was at that time to get out of industrial grey Birmingham and to be in a band. So yeah, I've got I've got a, I've got a lot to thank John for. So when it came to the plotting, because you strike me as a plotter, or a, I mean, 
it in yes, and I say in the nicest compliment. sense of the word. In yes. the nicest conceivable. <laughs> as a maniacal schemer, you <laughs> strike me yes. as the good kind. Well, you know what, actually, it's a joke, but it's not far from the truth, because if you that applied to art and music is the good kind. You could sit there making diagrams of how you want to take over the world in other ways, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, we, we, we pretty much did in that way. We, um, we, we would go to concerts and count the amount of lights that a band had and then oh, look at yes, the trucks yes. and, and see, see how they would fit that into a truck and figure out how many speakers there were. And, <laughs> it's like risk. If we were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well that, we used to play that when we were making the third, third Duran Duran album in, in France. The two really? managers and the five band members all used to sit around and play Risk. I love Risk. Who went for Australia? <laughs> well, it varied. It varied from 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 game to game. But uh, I do remember one game. I remember one game when when um, when Andy was being quite aggressive, and one of our oh, managers, no. Paul, one of our <laughs> managers, Paul, was so annoyed with him that he just decided to to take him out. And he knew he would then lose the game by doing it, but he was so annoyed. And that, that's the sort of thing that can happen in that game, isn't it? So he just literally killed off all Andy's armies and then lost the game himself too. But um, it stopped Andy from taking over the world, which was probably a good thing. Yeah, someone, it had to be done. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of, I guess, to loosely call it ambition within the band... Were you all like that, or was is it like? I think I think John and John and I really were the ones who uh, I think could probably be described as the most ambitious. Uh, when we took Simon on, uh, he wanted to finish his time at drama school, but we just sort of said, "Well, no, that's not going to work for us because we've got a lot of things to do and we've got to get a move on." And our managers at the time said, "Oh no, absolutely not," and he couldn't believe that. We were in such a hurry. And Roger is a bit more laid back generally, I think. So, yeah, John and I really, I, I, I think, could safely say we, we drove the band. Also, I should give Andy Taylor some credit for that because he moved from Newcastle to join the band in Birmingham. He, he was young, uh, 18, 19, whatever he was, and, and picked up his life, came with his amp, under his arm and his guitar and and moved to Birmingham. And and I think that was a brave move. And he was ambitious because he wanted to be successful too. Yeah, it's amazing how, well, maybe not, it's, it's old news to you, but I always think it's crazy how young you were and how quickly everything, how, how, how quickly it goes from that to all of us all over the world seeing you on the boat in the colored suits, you know? Yeah. Well, I was I was already twenty by then. Old, uh, <laughs> old, old man in the sea. <laughs> kind of a random question when you were describing seeing uh, the buzzcocks. Okay, this is from from our eyes. You know, you were the first person I saw with the the behind the keyboard shot. You know, you see the back of the synth, and you see it. The right. what was it? Row, row. You know, it's the classic Roland. shot. And you, Roland, exactly. Oh God, that will get edited out. Ready, Roland. <laughs> I came yeah. up with that. Um, and you, you know, kind of the ser- semi-serious, like you're 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 calculating, and you're you know whatever you're doing. 
was there someone that became pretty iconic? I mean, there was a whole generation of me included where, okay, I don't want to be the guy with the guitar. I, that's me. I mean, that, and that was even before DJing. And I think for a lot of people later that became DJing, seeing the guys standing behind the turntables. Was there somebody who you, was that modeled on anything? Not really, because there weren't keyboard players that I ever saw performing live that had any sort of specific um, look about them. Of course, it was Brian Eno, I should say, but I, I didn't, I think of him with the, uh, the sort of the EMS VCS3 on top of the pops or whatever, fiddling with the, 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 the dials and the knobs on the, on the synth and the feathers, which was a fabulous look, but craft uh, work, who mm. uh, were more robotic. The Yellow Magic Orchestra I liked, but that was sort of subtle Japanese. I don't, I suppose what I did was was looked at all the, the, the people I liked, again, dating back to Roxy Music and, and, and Bowie and uh, T-Rex and a lot of other glam rock things, and wanted to bring that to synthesizers almost because... Uh, the other synth players before people who I hugely respect, like Jean-Michel Jarre, he, he was much more sort of low key for yeah. me. If I was going to be in a band, we wanted to be the ultimate band, just like the bands we saw in the seventies and grew up with. And so clothes and style and gear and architecture and lighting and, Things like that were, were important from, from that time. And I didn't really think about other keyboard players. No, is the answer to, to the question. Mm. Uh, Eno, I, I would have to say, would, would probably be the most flamboyant of the keyboard players. But, but it, it was a very different kind of look and a different time. Yeah, I guess I got to talk for a second about clothes. I know we had, we had some really good shit about clothes in the Lost interview. Your clothes were incredible or are incredible. John's clothes are incredible. And I wanted to ask you, like, when did you first start buying a lot of clothes? <laughs> or, oh, well, or when, I, I mean, started thrift store and then... Well, not a little bit of thrift store, but but we didn't have as many in the in the UK then. Um, we, d we didn't really have vintage stores for sure. We had Salvation Army stores and things like that, but um, Oxfam stores, but not really where you would find great things. John and I used to go mostly to women's boutiques. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and uh, fortunately, we could fit into um, the sizing that they had with <laughs> things. And we'd buy jackets or tops and things there because they had much more interesting things. Men's clothes were incredibly dull and predictable uh, unless you really had a vast budget to go to uh, the grand designers, which we didn't. So, so you had to improvise. And when we were about 14, 15, 16, that's when we started buying more interesting clothes. And through punk times, when we went out then, you'd sort of modify your own clothes uh, as they did. You would um, add uh, embellishments to what you, um, what you were wearing. You... You'd find old buckles and uh, badges <laughs> and pins and uh, cut 
with razors cut cut fabric and pull out mm. the lining through it and and do things like that and so we we learned to become quite creative with clothing earlier on and then i think the first store that really had fantastic clothes in birmingham um during the period we were we were um coming up was uh Karn and bell on hearst street in birmingham and patty and jane uh, became dear friends of ours uh who made all the clothes and they were the coolest looking most interesting characters in all of birmingham to me um and then there was a uh, martin degville who oh, later was in Zig 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 Sputnik. Sputnik, yeah yeah but he had a store in um uh, a market called oasis and he made fantastic fascinating clothes he he was very creative too um and so so there was this sort of underground scene that developed this post punk scene and that's when we really were able to experiment a lot more and certainly the rum runner club where we um we that's your home base and, right? and that was our home base absolutely uh there we were able to uh, see exactly what the temperature of everything was because style style was your your entry card and, battle test um, every outfit yeah and and everybody in there the the kids that used to go there were so creative and and interesting and and it was it was inspirational to be around that whole scene i'm reading a book about the blitz club right now the oh yeah the Blitz, we went to Blitz. We, we, we went and we kind of, we thought it was okay. It was, there was lots <laughs> of great looking things, but we couldn't wait to get back to the Rum Runner. The Rum Runner was so much more fun. Blitz Club was very London based and it was cliquey. The Rum Runner was only cliquey in that you sort of had to look right. They didn't want um, people in there that looked like they might cause trouble, I suppose. Um, but otherwise, it was so relaxed and just like one gigantic party. I, I suppose it's how I imagine Studio Fifty Four was uh, in its um, in its heyday in in seventy seven seventy eight when it opened. Uh, the Rum Runner had that party atmosphere and that madness to it and flamboyance that I've never really seen hardly anywhere else. A little in the, in, in New York in the eighties for sure at um, Palladium and Area was was another magnificent club. But but the Rum Runner to me and Blitz were not comparable. It's incredible that you had that you had that in your backyard, like as a as a launch point. Oh. You can't really take that out of the equation. I mean especially oh, not no, just no, no, to, no. to test the music. Yeah, yeah. It it was pretty remarkable that that was there. No question. And we, we, we again were were lucky but but we sorted out. John and I knew it was the coolest place in town. So we went there looking to play a gig and this was way before we had Simon in the lineup. And the managers of the club, Paul and Michael Barrow, I guess, saw something in John and I and and said, well, yes, we can give you a, a gig. You can come and play a show here, but let's have a chat. Let's have a listen to your music. And they ended up managing us for five years. That's good luck. And they weren't shysters either, right? 
I, I, that's not something that I, th- I think I'm able to discuss without speaking to my lawyer. But um, I, I could, I could say, I could say it didn't end well. I guess what I meant to say was they weren't shysters at the beginning. Nobody is at the beginning. Um, what is a record that actually makes you jealous because it's so good? <laughs> like well, jealous. I don't, I don't know about jealous. There are records that I do envious. really wish. Yeah, envious for sure. There are, there are many that I wish I'd made. Um, most of Prince's catalogue. Mm. Um, I, I, th- I think through the 80s, every time one of those records had come out, I, I'd sort of almost live in fear of how good it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think Prince, Prince, Prince was the one that did that to me repeatedly. I, I remember hearing uh, Parade for the first time and, uh, or Purple Rain and uh, <laughs> all that, 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 that sort of run of albums there, Sign of the Times, which is, is a, a real masterpiece. Devastating, um, devastating. So, so, so Prince, but there's a lot of others. Um, I discovered it much later than when it came out, but Fresh by Sly and the Family Stone is, mm. is one of my favorite records. I, I think that is just the ultimate master funk album. And uh, that, that's really um, in, the, in the sort of mid 80s. Uh, that's what drove me personally much more into exploring the funk area, which was very fruitful and, and a lot of fun. I still, of course, love all funk that um, remains in my collection. Did you ever feel competitive you know someone a yeah. bit more direct something a bit more you're like oh yeah. fuck guys they they just did this or did you hear that uh, or i think the competition for us um was really the police uh we always felt that we were chasing them a little bit we we had a very different sound clearly they were a bit older than us um they were ahead of us they'd broken mm-hmm. america but I, I i always had enormous respect for sting as a songwriter uh, every single they put out just had something um, really great about it. Well, nearly all of them, um, for sure. Things like Walking on the Moon and uh, Message in a Bottle and Don't Stand So Close to Me. They were perfect pop songs. Every Breath You Take. Yeah, it just really um, melodic, unusual, um, unique and and they were also very successful. So the fact they got America, they were really, you know, the first British ba- band for a long time to get America. And and that was important to us. Um, so, so, so they're the ones we sort of chased. I don't think we really got into competition. Here there was much made of, of, of it, the competition between us, us and Spandau, but nah. they were really, they were friends, <laughs> you know, it was fun. Frankie that goes seems to Hollywood. like more of a media thing. Yeah. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, when that record came out, um, uh, Relax. I think that's the first time when we heard that, I actually thought, oh, now this is going to be interesting because uh, <laughs> this is quite good, isn't it? This is going to yeah. be around <laughs> for a minute. And, and then they brought out Two Tribes, which I thought was another really brilliant record. Um... So, so yeah. Relax, don't do it when you want to go to it. Relax, don't do it when you want to come. Relax, don't do it when you want to suck it to it. Relax, don't do it when you want to come. When you want to come. 
and that's also a little bit more in your wheelhouse in terms oh, of the for visual sure. and the- I, I thought i thought the whole campaign the, the frankie says thing was, was so good fantastic and yeah they, they were stylish and great uh, uh, they, it, it was a brilliant record and um trevor horn as well who is very clever uh fantastic producer musician he he made a great job of of that record a lot of fair light on it um the you know the which was really the synth of the moment around that period that not many people were using it was frankie and obviously trevor horn and uh uh, peter gabriel used it brilliantly um and kate bush and and then i I love kate bush oh me too (laughs) me too she started very young Oh yeah, yeah. But again, a proper, proper artist. I, yeah. I, I've seen both of her tours. I actually saw her in 1979 or whatever it was when wow. Wuthering Heights was out. And then recently, uh, well, recently, a few years ago, she played um, in Hammersmith, a very long residency. Uh, the first time she played in, I don't know, 35 years, 40 years, whatever it was. And, um, Equally as good as she was then. Just uh, beautiful the show was. She's a devastating full package as, as yep. an artist. It, it just, actually, that's a song that brings me to tears. Uh, Under the Ivy. Oh. Well, I, I don't oh, cry well, every day. Not every day, but <laughs> I don't do it regularly. But. No, she, she, she's, she's worth a few tears for sure. She's, she's an amazing artist. I really, um, I've enjoyed her work enormously. Uh, when you said about the police and, you know, like out of the corner of your eye, seeing they'd broken America and things like that, how, well, now we live in an era with all numbers, you know, like people just are even, you know, all artists, they're checking their, their Spotify numbers and they're getting updates. And I mean, it's become, Dull. it's almost comical. Well, it's almost mm. like a fantasy football or a stock market, you know, it's just back then. What was the climate like for a successful band back then? Were you got how aware? How how closely were you monitoring things like that? Well, you couldn't. There was no internet. Uh, there was there was there was no but but there was no <clears throat> staring at a cell phone. No, but there were, there were, no, there, there really wasn't. What the technology wasn't available, so you'd hear that your record was doing quite well at the radio stations. And they were supposed to report it in America and Canada, particularly, who were further ahead with that sort of marketing stuff. And they'd say, well, WLIR have played you 22 times this week. Or, or you'd get some stuff spat at you by um, people from the record label who were working the record and trying to get people to play it Um and obviously that was their their business to do that. But you never really knew what it meant until you saw a chart position. Then you knew that something was happening. It was all that was really the only um, monitor, the only gauge to to know whether you were being successful commercially or not. That and the number of record sales. How much did that matter? at the time chart position for example uh, not really uh, it's easy for me to say it now um and i don't want to try, sound try dis- to get into the headspace of well you know. i don't want to sound disingenuous about it we we were ambitious and we really 
wanted to have hits. I, I never forget how disappointed John was when the Union of the Snake, he thought our career was over because it went in at number three instead of number one. Um, so that's the level it got to. But at the same time, it was about making the best thing we could. And, and really, it didn't matter so much, uh, the commercial side of it, but we were very grateful to have that because it enabled us to do whatever we wanted to do. If you think about the sort of commercial suicide that we we attempted um, when we made the Arcadia and Power Station records in 1985, we'd just come off the back of about three worldwide number ones. We just went and made two... Art, sort of art records. Collaboration art records with loads of people that took out a year and a half at the peak of our um, our sales. I don't think there's that many artists that do that. Uh, I, I know plenty of other artists who have done well with a record and slammed out another one that really wasn't very good to capitalize on it. Um, I'm not going to name names, but they all know <laughs> who they are. Um we would never do that. We, it's just not possible. I can't do things like that. It's not in my, my blood. Even if I wanted to, I can't. Um, I've often been asked to do things uh, for commercial reasons that, you know, I, it just doesn't work for me. I got approached to be on one of those, those TV shows, those pop idol, American idol, whatever they're all called. And I had some conversations about it, but I just couldn't see myself doing something like that other people are fine with it I, i'm not i'm not putting it down it's it's horses for courses and this was not my course i think when you start young and there's a there's a baseline level of independence and you just yeah. get to know that i think it's next to impossible i mean unless you're desperate for money or you're whatever i think it's really really hard you've just you can't get used to things being forced upon you. And it feels so alien, someone else saying, hey, do this, or hey, what about no, this? Completely, like, no. completely agree. I, I, the one thing that I would advise artists is do not relinquish control over what you want to do. Um, that's, that's the one thing that I know we got right. We got plenty of things wrong, but that we got right. What's a record that you think is... Uh uh, I don't know, wrongfully overlooked or, or chronically underrated? Um, no, that's a hard one because there are a lot of records that have done well. I, we talked earlier about Hunky Dory, the David Bowie album. If I'd made mm. that album and put it out and it did as badly as it did the first time round, I, I would have been really questioning everything that I ever knew, I think, because if you're able to achieve something that great and it gets ignored it just shows you that it isn't all about great content much of it is about uh, marketing and word of mouth and people getting to know what something is because later when people discovered hunky dory after ziggy stardust was a big hit everybody hailed it as the classic that it really is so there's many things that come out that are sort of underrated. I love the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, the um, Wendy Carlos soundtrack. Um, uh, and the movie, we all know, is, is uh, uh, sacred now. But when that came out, 
it was sort of banned in a lot of places or actually withdrawn in the case of the UK by, by Kubrick. Um, and I don't think a lot of people understood just how great that soundtrack is. Uh, a real masterpiece again of, of taking uh, classical pieces and performing them with synthesizers was, was a really unique idea. I think that's very sort of hidden and underrated. Uh, Grace Jones, uh, we talked about those. Warm Leatherette, Nightclubbing, two of my favourite records. I don't know that they were hugely successful. Certainly Grace has never been successful on the level that Lady Gaga was. And Grace was really the one that was there first. Um, I would say the same of the first first Blondie album is a really great record. That's the first record I bought with my own money. Is it? Oh, wow. Well, that <laughs> yeah. was a good choice. I, I love that record uh, with Parallel Ripper to lines, Shreds. Right? Uh, no, that's not the first one. No, 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 no. Oh, no. okay. Par- Sorry. Parallel Lines yeah. is about the third one. Um, okay, well, it's the first one I bought. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's that. That's an that's an amazing record. But the first album has got things like uh, In the Flesh and um, uh, Ripper to Shreds on it, which okay. I just love. It's that's really a post punk. Uh, um, I don't know. It, it's 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 the missing link. For me, that New York scene of uh, uh, the Talking Heads and um, the, what was going on at CBGBs at that time—that—that's—that's that's a really interesting period. Yes, percent. Um, and then the other one we talked about was the Iggy Pop albums, uh, "Lust for Life" and "The Idiot," which really I don't think sold that well when they came out. Again, they've become cult classics, but they really, for me, were incredibly important records yeah i find iggy pop as much as he's a recognized icon i still feel he's kind of underrated i mean as as an artist and as a his intelligence and his everything he's a real force in nature a one-off and and a little little bit underrated he's a truly great proper rock star yes and they're not there's not many of them he's he's solid gold rock star I should say solid, solid silver really is more Iggy, isn't it? I know this is a hard question. What's the the best record you've ever made or your favorite record you've ever made? Well, you know, well, it it varies, doesn't it? Actually, the the most futuristic record I ever made was the one I did with Warren Cucurullo, the TV Mania record, um, which we wrote and recorded around 1997. It was called Bored with Prozac and the Internet. (laughs) Um, and that one really was all about everything that has come to pass since that date. It was all about technology, um, uh, designer drugs, uh, the internet, surveillance, CCTV. You left out pandemic. Well, thankfully that one (laughs) didn't come to my mind at the time, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting record because it's entirely made up of samples from TV. And oh, we, used, cool. we used all the, the people talking on TV and then tuned them or played them mm. and wrote the music around that. So I, I think that's probably um, for sure the most futuristic from the Arcadia album I'm very proud of. I, I think that's the, the best time capsule of the, the period of the middle of the 1980s with all the different people on it and the, 
the the sound of it, um, which it took forever to mix that, but but it really has held up well. Um, for Duran Duran, it's difficult to to say with that. The Rio album obviously was incredibly important. The first album to me was the the one that set out um, our sort of map of of what we were what we were going to do. It set some of the boundaries, and then the Rio album I think established things more. Uh, and certainly, that's the record that really broke us worldwide. Uh, so so that I. I I, I think probably um, is quite a complete record. Was there a, a particular song that you always loved to play live? It varies. Uh, now we're <laughs> lucky because there's so many. Hungry Like the Wolf always goes down well everywhere because I think it just makes people smile. It's got, it's got, it's got a very it's positive a, it's energy. A bomb. It's a bomb track. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we wouldn't get out of a building without playing Rio now. I don't think there was there was a time when I used to like taking it out of the set, but now I don't know that even I would dare do that. Um, and then Ordinary World always um, works well for me live. It's usually in the middle of the set where we need to sort of slow things down a little and reset the the, the gauge and and. Um, because it's such an emotional piece of music, uh, I, I think that works very well with a live audience. You had wanted me to, for the dream lineup for your show, we're going to change that to like Dream Festival, right? If I could imagine a dream lineup for a, for a festival and I could take artists from any period. You can. It's quite, a difficult, it, it's quite difficult to sort of put together what would you do and what order would you have them playing. But I just literally did it off the top of my head a little earlier today. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to have the Velvet Underground open. And, and imagine it's like next weekend. So it's full vaccine everybody everyone's fine and this is the first day out yeah 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 well i think velvet <laughs> underground out that's <laughs> pressure no pressure <laughs> i i think the velvet underground opening would be uh something to set a, a, a an unusual tone to the to the day and um, okay i i was lucky enough to see them with john we flew to paris when they did the reunion and uh, oh wow and 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 that's that that's something that i'll, I'll remember for the rest of my life uh but but it was fun seeing those songs live, um, and and fortunately it was the whole band too. So 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 yeah, I'd I'd I'd, I'd love to have them back, and then then I think Grace Jones, uh, yeah, and and Kate Bush. Um, uh, I quite like Kate Bush into Prince. I think that would be a nice transition. <laughs> But, but we'd, but then we'd have to have Sly and the Family Stone after Prince. I, f- I feel as much as I love Prince, he was uh, he was a very good student of uh, of several great artists like Sly mm. Sly Stone and uh, and certainly obviously Hendrix and and a few others. But I'd take Sly and the Family Stone. But then I'd want to swap the mood and change to Kraftwerk. Um, so wow. we'd go from funk into complete electronic. And then after that, um, I think... Oh, you're still, you're still going? Yeah, I've got two more. I'd then go David <laughs> oh, Bowie um, okay. uh, as the penultimate act. And then I'd I'm have to have the Beatles. I'm trying to think who closes. Who closes? The Beatles. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think I'd have to have the Beatles, the original lineup. But, you know, I, I'd want them sort of around the period of, uh, I, I guess, the White Album. The White Album period. You didn't hold back. No, no. Well, you did say the ultimate lineup, so I thought, well, that wouldn't be bad. 
I've missed lots of people there, but but uh, but yeah, that that'll be a good day. I think Prince has like four, Prince has fourth billing. <laughs> <laughs> Prince, uh, oh, here's, the, here's the good news. Good news is you're playing Nick's show. <laughs> Post-pandemic, I, it's fully safe. Here's the I think he'd be, he'd be fine going on after Kate Bush. He'd be fine. I, you know, I had no, I have absolutely zero connection to the Beatles. Oh, well, you should start with, maybe start with the White Album. That, that album is just, just really very, very special. Um, you are, I'm going to give you three special VIP guest tickets. These people... It could be actually for your own show or for your dream show. And these three people are going to come and hang out, you know, with you, whatever, alive or dead. Who, who well, are you bringing? I, I, well, I, I mean, I'm tempted to sort of say Jesus, Satan and Dracula. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It depends. I, I don't know. Stanley Kubrick, um, Federico Fellini and Orson Welles would be a nice, uh, mm. a nice trio. Um, oh, that's good. Or maybe, maybe some ladies, um, Marlene Dietrich, say, Greta, Marlene Dietrich Greta Garbo and Lauren Bacall. How about that? Yeah, um, the second group I, yeah. might be. Who was yeah, it? Dietrich, I, Bacall, and who was the third? Garbo, I yeah. think would be a nice, that'd be a nice group. Uh, or I don't know, or artists would be fun too. Picasso, Dali, and Warhol would be a nice, uh, nice little trio to have a chat to, wouldn't it? Well, I don't, I don't know. You know, if it were 1969, then I, I, I'd, I'd have said Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins, for sure, for sure. Who are those Apollo, astronauts? Yeah, oh, the, these are the, your, your the Apollo astronauts. crew, the first men, the first men on the moon. That 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 would have when you're four. Yeah, uh, yeah, seven of those four groups for for just pure fun factor. I don't know. I mean, ultimately, if I was forced, I'd have to. I think I'd, I'd have to take the Marlene Dietrich group. But, yeah, but, I was going to um, say. But but uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. In, uh, for for interest to see how they interact and see what they're like. That's uh, yeah. People that are alive now, I'm sure there are some people that I. I, I there are some choices of people that I would um, still like to meet, and I think would be fascinating. But I have met an awful lot of people that I'm. I, I'm interested in already, and and I think it's always more fascinating the myth of people that are no longer with us, and you wonder, well, what would that have been like, or wouldn't it have been interesting? Did you meet Prince? Yeah, 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 many times. Yeah, come on, give me. Well, I'm, I'm all, I, I I adore Prince. I mean, he's, he I mean, might well, be. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, he. That's he's, true. He he was always um, he was always very gracious and um, he he's quite serious I, I think at the times I, I sense that he really did have a uh, a sense of humour but but it, it wasn't clearly um, visible or audible that's for sure yeah the first time I met him he he, he actually. When it was, it was it was it was in the eighties. But he he was very nice. He talked about um, planet Earth. He really liked planet Earth. Well, that's good. He 
was in Paris a little. We, we used to go to the Bandouche sometimes. And I saw oh, yeah. him there quite a bit. And we played, we played a show with him once, actually, uh, in Zurich. It was somewhere, somewhere in Switzerland. It was a festival. In fact, was it, or maybe it was the Montreux Jazz Festival. I, I can't remember. But, but anyway, um, that, at that time, we didn't speak to him. I guess when he's in his sort of work mode, we didn't go out of the way to speak to him, obviously. But but um, but he was he he was he was interesting, a bit sort of withdrawn. But I didn't know him well. I'm sure if if you knew him well, he was probably much more fascinating. But um, yeah, I tell you, talked about talked about music a lot. He was a big big music fan, obviously, and knew virtually everything and could even play it all himself on any instrument better than most of the people who played him in the first place. I think this question I definitely had asked you last time. Um, so you just mentioned going to Bandouche, let's say, in, I guess that's late 80s. And I'd asked you before, like, considering you were you were young and you were English, and I'd asked you how, like, the whole Acid House experience... 88, 89, 90, ecstasy culture, right. rave culture, all that. How, why you never kind of got more into it? Or just tell me a little bit about that. Simon was much more into rave culture than, than I was. Uh, he used to go along and uh, participate. Um, <laughs> I, do, I don't know. For me, I, I liked some of the, the electronic stuff coming out of it. And there were there were artists later that that I liked, uh, the Prodigy, I, I thought were important. Um, You're not into drugs, more, though. I, no, I, not really. Uh, well, not at all. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't take any drugs since I was 21 I like years the, old. I love the the not really into not at all. It's a classic. <laughs> no, that's, that's, well, I didn't, that's a classic. Since I was 21, I I just. I, I, I don't know. I like I, I like being in control of myself, and so it's not really appealing for me to put anything into my system when I don't know what the possible outcome might be. Yeah, you don't drink coffee, right? Is that no. true? So, no, I don't. Wow, respect. No. Don't drink coffee. I've never had coffee. I've never had tea. I've never had Coca Cola. That's not or, true. Or, You've never had Pepsi tea. Cola. No, I haven't. You've never had a cup of tea. No, no. The Coca-Cola, no. I get. I mean, really? Wow. Did your parents drink tea? Yeah. Yeah. My mom drinks it all the time. Um, and you just, executive decision, age like six? Yeah, You're like, nope, but when I asked her, I asked her once why I didn't have tea. And she said, oh, I did try to give it to you once, but you spat it out so violently. Uh, she said, I think maybe it was just a bit too hot or something. I don't know, but you really didn't like it. So I didn't bother trying it again. And you never asked, so, <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> it's it just sounds like it's hassle to me that I I um I don't know sort of having to go through the routine of making a cup of tea and it sounds incredibly lazy when everybody else in Britain <laughs> does it, but I I don't know I I, I drink things uh, I'll, I'll see I'll make fresh grapefruit juice I suppose but I, I won't make tea. Yeah, I don't know if it's don't a, know. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's more of a hassle than making fresh grapefruit juice. But um, it's just the thought of it because people do it so many times a day here. It's it's just unappealing to me to have to go through all that process. I understand. It's just water with some some herbs in it, isn't it? Really, I I just as soon have um, juice, some sparkling water with some lemon in it, or something, or some fresh juice for sure, or 
or a nice glass of wine. Okay, okay, so you drink wine at least. I don't drink wine. I don't drink alcohol. Yeah, it wasn't appealing to me, but I liked some of the music, but I, I were didn't... We, I didn't... <laughs> what were we talking about, sorry? Had... Uh, rave, rave culture. Okay. And, and... <laughs> I was, I was, sorry, I, I lost my own train of thought. <laughs> you, you, you were lost. I was thinking tea You and were in coffee. tea. Yeah. Rave. <laughs> rave, rave. But uh, some good things came out of it anyway, didn't they? And, and then it, we sort of moved into the world from there of, uh, of Daft Punk, didn't we? So uh, I, I'm not sure we would have ended up in the same place hadn't we had uh, the rave thing in between. I was, uh, I put, I don't remember why, I, I put on uh, Diana Ross Upside Down the other day. And, oh, uh, wow. Fantastic. And I was, it's just mind blowing. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense how good it is, or it does make sense. And, <laughs> and yeah, the, the intro is is just just spectacular, it, isn't it? It's just spectacular. And yeah. I got to thinking about Niall and and how did you guys how did you guys meet? Uh, Niall had done a remix for oh I don't know he actually I don't know it was a remix he produced I think in excess song called the original sin. Oh I like and that song. Dream on yeah. white dream. On. Yeah yeah uh, yeah. That's anyway, the one. Sorry. Um, we heard. <laughs> we, we, no, 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 not at all. We, we were in Australia, I think, and we'd we'd heard that song, um, and obviously, in excess, were were um, extremely popular in Australia, being from there, and we said, "Wow!" So. Niles up for working with um, modern bands. We'd long been uh, fans of Chic, and his work we cited them many times. It always says uh, the cross between the Sex Pistols, Chic, and Kraftwerk, or Giorgio Moroder, or those, those names were always bandied around, talking about what our influences were or where we'd come from, and. Um, and so Niall and Bernard had actually seen this and were very grateful that we'd been talking about them because in many ways they'd sort of been cast aside. Disco was sort of a dirty word and they'd, they'd sort of been sold down the river as uh, something from the past. And we always said, well, no, actually disco is fantastic. Well, we, we love David Bowie, but we love disco too um, mm. at the same time. Um, and... Niall was very much one of the the key factors of, of why we wanted to be on the dance floor. And so we contacted Niall and said, hey, we got this song called The Reflex and um, we don't feel we've brought it to its full potential on the album. The album's just about to come out, but would you fancy doing a remix for us? And he said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Around with my chances on the danger 
sort of first met Niall. And from there, uh, we've worked with him. That was 1983. And we've worked with him ever since, uh, on and off. Uh, he did the Notorious album with us. He did Wild Boys with us. Uh, he's on uh, Astronaut. He worked with us on some of that. He He's uh, on the Paper Gods album. He, do, he did Pressure Off with us. Yeah, there's a, a man man with a mission. It's a great combination. It's a great, like, it just it just fits together really, really well. It's, it's perfect. Is there something that you fight against in terms of being creative? Like, is there something that pulls you away from being creative? A force you ever uh, have to fight against to stay in the pocket? Yeah. Uh, well, or no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of distractions. Uh, I, I think there's there's so many things in life to deal with all the time, uh, whether it's um, family or friends or whether it's uh, a moving house or um, whatever else is there, taking care of different business aspects. I spend a lot of my time um, dealing with behind-the-scenes things for the band uh, with our manager, Wendy, who is uh, um, a godsend for us. If you were given the magical administrator who could just, in a trustworthy way, remove all the, the, the administrative day-to-day... It's not possible because the thing is, it, when, when you when you like to have control over ah, okay, okay, um, okay. things in the way that I do, it means that somebody's got to decide whether a song can be licensed to a movie or whatever it is. Those kind of decisions, by the way, of course, go to all the writers of the song. So that's not a decision I make on my own. But but there are many many decisions about how we do things or what things are or how we set something up that take a lot of time. If we're putting together a tour, the visuals alone can, which is great because it's creative, but that can take a month. Are are the other guys just like, don't worry, Nick will do it? No, we all have our different... sort of About the compilation, for example. Yeah, but but mostly uh, the... A lot of the organizational stuff and choosing things and people that we we work with on on specific projects can fall more to me. Uh, John is very much involved with me with the uh, you know the artistic side of graphic design and all those kind of things. We try to do those together. Um, Simon gets involved in different things. Actually, we we found Simon is the band's nose. We have found. Uh, so uh, when we recently did a collection of, <laughs> we did some a perfume collection. Oh, and Simon, Simon, uh, it was really fun actually. And Simon um, w- was leading that one, and it w- it was it was uh, good for me to to see um, him doing something different, and and also he he, he oversaw the candle uh, manufacture. So uh, so it's this the thing. Whole factory yeah, we've got department. candle. You got a candle uh, candle department. So if you need if you need any kind of scent, Simon's your person within the band. Uh, but if but if you need graphic design, you have to come to John and I. Really, yeah. See that was see the the olfactory approval department was not on your and John's original schemes. No, no. It had it, that's and if it was, that. I'm deeply impressed. 
No, 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 it wasn't. It- if you had the foresight for candle division back in 1975 or whatever it no. is. No, that one didn't. I sometimes see, you weren't even ambitious. Like, You're not even did properly you, ambitious. Did you ever see... You call yourself um, ambitious? <laughs> did you ever see um, Bedazzled, the original one with uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore? No, I didn't. Uh, oh, well, 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 well then, then, then I insist that you watch it almost immediately. Um, it, it, I really, will. it really, It really is quite... Quite good, and um, there's a scenes in that sometimes when you when you see I won't spoil it for you, but you'll understand when Dudley Moore makes one of his his wishes, and he 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 gets to do what he thinks something is going to be, but he hasn't thought about a few things, and so it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> you, you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> Last question closing record at your last party or alternatively if you want to go full drama what song would play at your funeral oh goodness well i'd like to say we'll meet again but um uh i don't know uh well last song at the party I, all tomorrow's parties would have to be the last song at the party i think um mm-hmm. there's always another party at the moment it doesn't feel like there ever will be but um but i don't know I don't know, in a hand-me-down gown. I think there will be. Uh, a funeral, that's one to think about. I don't know, maybe all the entire of the rites of spring, that would sort of detract people for a bit, wouldn't it? Um, or, or, or maybe Venus in furs. And what costumes shall the poor really thought about but I, I, classical music too the the one thing as much as i despise funerals um uh, like every other living person the, the one thing about them that i have always found slightly more tolerable is the part that music plays within funerals uh, and and yes, it does sometimes make you even more sad than you already are. But it it's the shared experience, the atmosphere that you remember from those things. And usually for me, again, it is the choral pieces and the really sort of beautiful, gothic, old school, classical pieces that uh, resonate the most. It's cliche, but it the music communicates what the what the words can't. It does something for sure. In this, I don't know about you. In this, I've been listening to so much music. That's good. What have you been listening to? <laughs> um, oh God, more than a healthy dose of Brian Eno and and I mean ambient stuff. I've been listening to more ambient than than any man should really. A lot of uh, so yeah, a lot of Eno. I've been listening to a lot of dub reggae. I've been listening. I've been listening to mostly old stuff. I don't know if it's like a some strange comfort thing. Like apparently, a lot of people have, according mm. to according studies. To studies, yes, <laughs> data. Yeah. Well, I've also been putting on records. Oh, that's nice. That's exciting, isn't it? Exactly. I'm just listening to albums. I put them on. I think it's just the time. I, I just have more time now. I'm not in such a big hurry so i'm listening to a lot of old records and 
Nick, it's been like, it's an absolute pleasure. If this one doesn't get recorded, by the way, one of us has to like go on the lamb. Oh, well, I've got two hours, <laughs> two hours, two minutes and 25 seconds at the moment. Shit. I got two. I got two hours on four devices. Okay. Well, I've only got one, but when I press stop on this, I'm just hoping that my entire computer does not die again. That's what happened last time. Don't press stop yet. Because it was. You realize, you realize, not to make you feel guilty, but you do realize it's our conversation that killed my computer. <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I stopped guilty, that, my I feel, computer I feel died. Pride. Pride, <laughs> not guilt. Oh, I sent you. I sent you to an Apple store like a civilian. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Oh, anyway, no, it's been a real pleasure, and I feel like I, could, I feel like we could talk forever, basically. All right, Tiga. Yeah, well, let's talk some more soon. We will. Uh, take care of yourself. Definitely. You too. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, Nick. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy my podcast. I would like you to take the extra time to recommend it to a friend or to add some little stars or even write a review. Any of that effort will result in me slowly climbing the algorithmic ladder to the stars, which uh, could result in untold riches. Last.